everybody. I'm Mike Gugino, and I'm Maggie Sirota. And this is Three Things. Today we have a very special guest. Uh, her name is Anika Pyle. Say hi, Anika. Hi, everyone. She is in Philadelphia, uh, New York transplant from from all over, from, mm-hmm. <laughs> from the <laughs> west to the east. Yes. Yeah. I um. Uh, by way of I what I meant I what I've been saying to Philly by way of New York by way of Colorado I guess that's how it would go right <laughs> it is Monument yeah. Colorado a tiny Monument town. Colorado yeah. yeah yeah I did my research what up oh yeah baby <laughs> <laughs> look who prepared for one I love it yeah it's so nice to be here um Maggie it's so nice to meet you and Mike it's just nice to see your face it's like been so nice long to, it's nice to see another human especially like another human i've met before so that's exciting i know how often does that happen <laughs> um in the past year n- never yeah like, <laughs> literally never mm. see we're bringing the people together yeah yeah via screens it's great the thing about three things is like it's really bringing healing to america i like to think of it that way yeah i yeah. think we're making the ultimate difference uh, this, is, here. <laughs> this, is, this is a public service. First hey, and foremost. every, every, um, you know, every connection and <laughs> uh, discussion of illuminating topics, especially when in threes, the brain loves threes, you know, the so brain I, loves threes. Just this is a it. healing. I think it's healing. <laughs> <laughs> the comedy rule of threes. Yeah. Yes. Threes are everywhere. Yeah, people love threes. So I don't. I I should have figured out wh- why that is. But yeah, it's a classic like speech writing thing. They're like doing threes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's like set up punchline, set up punchline, and then mm. get get off the stage when you're done. <laughs> get out of there. <laughs> Keep them wanting more. Oh. Leave town. Keep driving. Drive some more. Yeah. Very far away. Keep don't, going. Don't, don't stop. stop. Don't yeah. stop until you hit water. Then get out of the car, walk into the water. Keep walking. Anika, how are you dealing with this year of n- no shows? The last show I played was March like 7th of 2020. And then I got on a plane four days later and flew to LA to, to do a tour from LA to Austin, um, which would have resulted in a South by Southwest show, but that had already been canceled by the time we mm-hmm. flew. Yeah. Um, and then of course all those shows were canceled and we just drove straight back from LA to Philly, which was a quite a, a riveting experience. Wow. Was um, that Katie Allen or was that you? That was me. Yeah. Um, so were you alone just driving cross country? Like as like this plague is setting in? I was with my partner, Roger. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was quite, it was really wild. It was like, you know, we're on the plane and you know, we were like, I think Roger gets the Wi-Fi or something just to like mm-hmm. check what's going on. And like in between the time we got on the plane and got the Wi-Fi mid-flight, it was like the NBA had been canceled. Whoa. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson have coronavirus. And we're just like looking at everybody on the plane around us like this. We're about to land in LAX. Mm-hmm. Like if there was a time to get coronavirus, it would be right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, so we we had this Airbnb like a little airstream trailer, you know, in someone's backyard or something. And it was like raining in LA, like pouring, you know, which mm-hmm. of course you expect to like get be in 70 degree weather. And all of a sudden it's like this apocalyptic rain. We're stuck in this airstream trailer. We're trying like desperately to read the news. And it was mm-hmm. just so terrifying. Um, so yeah, we just, we just 
decided not to get back on a plane. Our flights were out of Austin and we were like, we have mm-hmm. to drive to Austin anyway. I don't want to get back on a plane. Let's just rent a car and drive all the way back. And we did. And it was quite wild. It was really oh wild. Oh my God. Yeah. That's yeah. a crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was so weird watching the world close yeah. at, at that, in real time at that moment. Yeah. I remember they were, I was working uh, for Bon Appetit at the time and mm. I was I was like headed to the World Trade Center and they're just like, the World Trade Center is closed. And I was like, oh, this is serious. Yeah. 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 It was, it's, it's funny. I haven't like had this conversation in a while. So it's kind of interesting to like, yeah. you know, a year later, I don't feel like we're obviously we're still quite in the middle of things, but um, yeah, it was so interesting being in different parts of the country too, and kind of seeing mm-hmm. the reaction. And, um, you know, we spent, we were supposed to play a show in Marfa, Texas at like a kind of like a glamping site sort of. And so we had booked two nights there mm-hmm. and of course it's like, you know, we don't really have internet and there's a bunch of people there. There's like no fucking soap, you know? It's like, <laughs> I'm like shitting in an outside like closet basically with a bunch of other people. And I'm like, we have to get out of here. I can't stay here. <laughs> like we have, we have to leave. So we stayed one night and then, um, you know, got up the next morning and went to a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these, it's like at the, already at that point, people were like standing six feet apart, waiting for coffee. It's like this tiny little coffee closet. There's one dude behind the counter making coffee and waffles shaped like Texas. And, um, you know, we're standing in line and it's like taking a while. Cause it's, you know, as a, as a barista, I feel empathetic for this person who's making coffee. And these two ladies kind of walk in, um, and like skip us in line and kind of go in and, and start talking to the, the, the guy and he was like, you know, there's a line you need to wait. And they're like, oh my God, sorry, we didn't even see the line. It's just like, we're, we're so crazy. You know, we're from out of town and, mm-hmm. um, we've you never know, heard we're of just we, like the concept of a line is new to us. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're, yeah. what do you call it? Yeah, again? We're, from, <laughs> what? Yeah, what? we're from California. We don't have lines there. Um, yeah, so they're, it out. Like they don't, yeah. <laughs> she's so they're like, you know, is it, you know, so they start talking to this guy, they don't leave and get in line. They're just like standing in there and, you know, they're like, is it true that someone's sick in town? And this like hard, like punk dude turns around and is like, don't fucking do that. Don't fucking say that shit. That's how lies get spread in real time. This is a small community. You're from out of town. Don't spread your lies here. And they were like, we were just asking a question. And he was like, I don't care if you're asking a question. The question you're asking is spreading disease. And everyone was like, I was like, damn, respect. <laughs> I, you know, and so we waited, you know, forever. And they left. They're like, well, we feel uncomfortable. We're leaving. He's like, good. I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. Um, the but punk yeah. has no time for your lies. Seriously. Oh. And, you know, and then and he was talking about like, you know, being like tanks at the border and sort of like having a sort of conspiratorial, like martial law conversation. But at that point I was like, maybe we will go into martial law. Maybe like. I don't know. It was crazy. And we, you know, saw like outside church services and and like just crazy shit. So I think my takeaway from your story is like, if I ever want to go shit in a hole in the ground, I should go to Martha. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't, I mean, no, no, like, you know, at the time I was quite anxious, but I will give them Mm -hmm. credit that they already developed like a system for checking people in and, Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know anything about Marfa, Texas, but it's pretty much a place where it's like, it kind of always feels like that. 
It's like yeah. Yeah. kind of a weird hippie, like liminal space. I see it as a liminal space. It's kind of like, you're mm -hmm. like, you know, going to get abducted by aliens at any moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so I have to give them credit now um, for, for the way they handled certain things. And of course now it's like, you know, the tents are like 20 feet apart. Like mm -hmm. it was not an, a particularly unsafe situation, but at that point you don't know anything and everything feels unsafe. So. Yeah. yeah, that was riding the train that day was like similar experience. Mm -hmm. Like the everybody was like keeping far away from each other. It was before anybody knew where to wear, where like wear masks mm -hmm. or apart or whatever. It's like such a weird, scary time. But now we feel like I feel like I'm an expert. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like I wear my mask. I like I go to my shop. I stay six feet apart. Well, you know, yeah. everybody it's... does like the elbow high five. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was that was like one really cute. Actually, we went to a, a grocery store in Marfa and it was like, you know, all of the sanitizing things were gone or whatever. And people were shopping and um, there were these two old ladies wearing masks and they clearly knew each other. And it was the first time I had seen this in real life. But they're like, you know, they're walking up to each other and they're like getting ready to hug. And then one of them puts out the elbow and then the other <laughs> one does the elbow bump. And they like were laughing about it. And I was like, that's cute people are adaptable it's pretty yeah. okay yeah we are incredibly adaptable mm -hmm. um it's hard it's you know i would like to not be so i would like to not have to adapt but yeah i, I listen to this podcast the human brain if you ever um i've heard of it but it's like an npr podcast but they were talking about that where it's like if you get people used to something they adapt very quickly where like Bef they were talking about it in respect to the coronavirus where at first everybody's freaking out and they're like what should we do we don't know and now a year later everybody's just like yeah it's like okay like here's how the lines are set up here's how you go into a store like here's how and people are just like fine with it at this point i mean maybe yeah. not fine with it but it's like it doesn't seem so daunting anymore yeah we like we get we get used to it are you talking about hidden brain Hidden Brain, that's what it is. I'm yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm I, I know I knew that because I'm obsessed with Hidden Brain and I literally listen to it every week. Um Yeah, it's that guy is amazing. I just Shank, I love when he says his name, Shankar Vedantam. It like yeah. makes me feel like I'm like hugged by like a caregiver yeah. or something when he says yeah. his name. <laughs> You're like, this guy's gonna like make me cry and laugh and feel everything all in one show yeah it's like he's gonna take care of me it's okay i actually talked about the the one about bullshit jobs on mm, this yeah i actually listened to that um i listened to that when my dad died and i went home my sister is a hidden brain fan and i remember um yeah we w i had gone home to colorado and uh we were like driving from denver where my sister lives down to the springs to visit my mom and we listened to that episode and I, I was like, it, it just, it seared into my brain as one of those like weird, you know, when you're like processing grief and you're like, what mm. happened? It's like, oh, I listened to this bullshit job yeah. from hidden brain. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I love that episode. Well, like the idea that like, it, you're not, you're not depressed because it's your problem, you know, it's just like the way things are set up, make us depressed. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. like, uh, it, it's like an interesting idea that it's like for years and years, I mean, you've had a million jobs, like mm -hmm. trying to be like, I want to do this thing, but, uh, I have to make money and survive. Mm -hmm. So it's this sort of conundrum of like, I will take this much unhappiness to get this much happiness. <laughs> yeah. And also just like the idea of like, 
you know, I, I think I related that to this experience once where, um, uh, I was talking to someone who I think she worked for severe magazine, some sort of like fancy food magazine. And she, you know, started out as like an ed, an associate editor or something, and then like moved up the ranks to, to a manager. And she's like, I just don't understand the more money they pay me, the less, the less I do. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, when you're a wage worker working your ass off for like eight fifty an hour plus tips, you're like, huh, <laughs> like yeah. interesting. And there are so you know, I find all of my you know many jobs, um, they've all at least been interesting. I've never been bored, and I've never mm -hmm. felt like they weren't necessarily making a contribution to society. But like thinking about being you know in this strange like mid-level management position or something where you're just pushing papers and you don't really mm -hmm. understand why your job exists. And it's sort of yeah. just like bureaucratic manufacture, mm -hmm. uh, like manufacturing of, of work and like, mm -hmm. yeah, the concept of like, you have to keep working even though there's no work to do. Like I'm a person who's yeah. like obsessed yeah. with working when I'm on the job. So it's like, I can't even like read if I'm at the coffee shop and there's nothing <laughs> to do. I'm like scrubbing the floor, you know? Mm -hmm. And like thinking about how that's sort of this like ingrained capitalistic psychology that like every is. like every minute like has to be like utilized product you know you have to be productive yeah. like quote unquote productive for any minute like yes any idle time is theft from the company yes yeah. like, if, you, yeah. fun one. if you can lean you can clean oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I heard that uh, one in my coffee shop jobs yeah oh wait yeah that's right we all used to be baristas at one point i think in philadelphia oh, or in, or oh, oh yeah in philadelphia oh my gosh really wow. <laughs> yeah. look at that philly coffee world <laughs> i love it um yeah my first boss i worked at a mexican restaurant called la casa fiesta and <laughs> my um my bosses were a married couple and they were originally from new mexico but they had a southern accent for some reason and my my boss sean would would like catch us, you know, if we were like filling chips in the kitchen, talking shit and laughing, he would come in and say, a watch pot never boils. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's like, it's like because terrifying. You were, like, because you were laughing while you were working? Like, <laughs> Oh, I think it's cause like, um, like you're waiting for the food to come out on the line, oh. you know? And mm. you're like, just like, just, you know, standing there. So he's like, it's kind of like, when it's time to lean and if there's time, yeah. time to clean, yeah. don't just stand there and laugh and like have fun while you're waiting for the food, fucking do something. But I hear it like every time I boil a pot of water, a lot. Oh, <laughs> <Never> boils. <laughs> and it's so funny because that sort of same idea of, uh, sort of spills over into art where it's like you're playing music and music is fun. So then why should we pay you for fun? Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I've been thinking so much about, um, sort of like, I was just having a conversation with someone about looking at making art or making music and playing shows as a service to, to humanity. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like maybe on the other side of this, people will, I, my hope is that they'll value, you know, all forms of art, but especially live music differently, having it suddenly taken away from you, you realize how much it is a contributor to, Mm -hmm. your like spiritual experience or, mm -hmm. you know, your, at least your entertainment experience. And yeah, I feel like it's like people, we don't value art or artistry or really like mm -hmm. our sense of work in America is so just it's strange. fucked up. Yeah, well, it's yeah. just not you, right. You've been posting a lot uh, on your Instagram about uh, Spotify and mm -hmm. raising, raising the per stream uh, payout, which is, which, which is now, 
I don't know, what is that? 0. 0.0038? Yeah, that's cents. the average payout, you know, which like, it's so interesting, like educating yourself about it. And then, you know, who works in the music industry or is, you know, a quote unquote, like working artist. And then the perception of, you know, people who are not, who don't care to know that Spotify is a pro rata model. Like who who's going to look that up and be like, should I choose Spotify or title? I guess I'll see the per payout. You know, no, you yeah. pay 12 bucks a month. You, you know, you listen to records and that's the new way to be a fan. And maybe you like songs or put them on a playlist or something. But mm -hmm. what I just, I think there needs to be some education about like, you know, there is an opportunity to make money from digital streaming like you do yeah. especially if you're like taylor swift obviously you're like fucking making bank mm -hmm. um but the problem is is that the more money taylor swift makes the more money she gets paid per play the less money i make per play because that's how the model works and it's oh, like oh i didn't realize it was like uh, a zero sum game yeah. yeah um and so that's kind of shitty because it's like yeah. it rewards people for things that are you know, I could work my ass off my whole life and never be Taylor Swift because mm -hmm. we we all know that these things are based on like, they're not based in reality. Like most people, yeah. you know, and you can get lucky on like TikTok, you know, that's how most viral musicians are getting plays right mm -hmm. now is like oh, really? making a sh weird shitty video on TikTok and all of a sudden you have like 600,000 plays yeah. on your song because some um, because your cat is funny you know yeah because <laughs> you made like a farting dog song or something exactly yeah. meanwhile you're like composing you know operettas and stuff yeah <laughs> it's like you're the fart dog guy yeah. <laughs> yeah well it's yeah i had a friend actually who sent something to me the other day and he was like you know not to devalue your art but this guy made this song making fun of <laughs> making art. He had been working as a musician his whole life, making like really deep personal music. He makes this one satire song and all of a sudden it's like, he finally gets to where he wants to be. It's like, you know, we have, it's, we live in a meritocracy and Spotify is like, it doesn't work like that. There's so much privilege. There's so much money. Now that you can pay to advertise on Spotify, it's like, I'm never going to have access to that kind yeah. of money. So it just, it's, well, it's almost like burning the bridge down behind you where where some like an artist like taylor swift gets somewhere and mm. then because she is famous she gets all the stuff and then no opportunity she doesn't leave any opportunity in her wake i mean it's kind of like america and the boomers a little <laughs> yeah. bit but but it's like they're like oh we like this system we're making money you know and yeah it's so weird i i was thinking about actually i was like you know what am i going to talk about today and one thing i've been this isn't my thing but one thing I was thinking about was, um, you know, I am doing an internship right now with an artistic activist organization and I'm running their social media for this thing called Actopedia, which is kind of like an open source wiki for creative activism. And it's been super inspiring because you realize how much one creative, you know, sort of like viral action, I guess, can have so much more leverage um, than, you know, maybe like. A, a protest, like a traditional pr protest. So I was like, what, what creative thing could I do to like amplify this Spotify action? And I was like, I just had this passing thought that I was like, if title would pay a penny per play and I could get X amount of artists to like commit to taking their stuff from Spotify to title, oh, yeah. um, I would do it in a heartbeat. I would, I would leave Spotify mm. behind forever. Um, mm. so 
Just a thought. I think Tidal actually pays more than Spotify. They do. They yeah. do. I can't remember what yeah. it is. Um, talking to our label about it recently. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I feel like for so many people, I currently have the benefit of owning all my music that's under my own name. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, I can make the decision to like move from Spotify to Tidal. But if you work with a label, you, you know, that's that's a decision that they'll have to make. And honestly, mm -hmm. if more labels leveraged their power to do that, um, it would benefit both them and their artists because they're both making money on streaming. But yeah, it's interesting. Um, so does it like really kind of like kind of get your goat to borrow a phrase from my mom when um like when you see like Spotify like make like you know like reaching a hundred million dollar deal of like Joe Rogan for his podcast or uh yeah it it I mean it's just like it's such a it's such a um a glaring example of mm -hmm. America. You know, like I was, we had just watched The Grapes of Wrath because my partner just finished um, reading it. And I've been obsessed with like comparing the pandemic to the to the Dust Bowl mm -hmm. um, because there was this saying in, in the Dust Bowl era that like every Dust Bowl farmer was a next year person. Like we're next year people because when you're a farmer, you're always thinking ahead because you're sowing yeah. seeds now for next year. And after so many years of like failed crops, it's like all they had was this hope, you know, of mm -hmm. next year. And I've like kind of likened our experience to that so much because it's like, you know, oh, well, you know, maybe by the fall, it'll be different or by mm -hmm. the spring or, you know, and then all of a sudden it was like, you know, Fauci was like, sorry, folks, next <laughs> year, maybe, you know, maybe 2022. And so, you know, we've been thinking about the Dust Bowl a lot. So anyway, we watched The Grapes of Wrath and I'm like, looking at this landowner guy who are like, you know, paying these peach farmers, like, or, you know, paying these migrant workers, like five cents a bucket for peaches. You don't like it. You know, some will take, do it for two cents. Mm -hmm. And I'm like listening to the spot CEO of Spotify be like, you know, well, you can't just put a record out once a, once every four years, you know, it's like someone's going to come in and you got to be Drake. You got to be dropping singles. You got to, you know, music has changed. Like a lot of people like the way that we do this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you like it because yeah. you're fucking, you're like, you're yeah. a venture capitalist hoarder. You're like, you don't, you don't make money from me. Like <laughs> I'm small, I'm small fish. You don't give a fuck about me. Like I'm grateful that I have access to your platform, but it's like, I even have to pay to put my music on it. I mean, you know, I pay x amount of dollars a year to for a distribution service and i was just like this is such an american narrative like yeah like you're, just, you're you know, just not working hard enough hey if you can make it yeah yeah well, it's not about yeah computer people you know they're not they're not musicians mm -hmm. and artists running these they are like we want content and we need more content so make more content like they don't really see it as like this process of like uh that takes time and care it's just like shit out another song for us please just fill us like fill it up with freaking songs <laughs> yeah more exactly stuff. yeah and they're like i mean i you know i haven't researched his background but i don't think the ceo of spotify is a musician <laughs> like He's not. i mean you know i i could be wrong but um yeah and it's just like the game is run by people who've never written a song who like don't know what it's like to be a you know a struggling artist and i fear that the more things that are run by algorithms the less control we'll have over our lives uh we should talk about your album a little bit because oh, yeah. a lot because it's gorgeous wow what a gorgeous album thank you 
I was, I mean, I will admit I was unfamiliar with your work last night, but um, until before, you know, recently. But um, I just think your your musical evolution so interesting. Thank you. From like chumps to what you're doing now. And like that album just really blew me away. It's beautiful. Thank you. I, I agree. That. I was like, uh, there's some songs now that I have to skip. Like there's <laughs> that whole part about your um the song about your father because there's like a lot of interesting things that pop up a lot in the lyrics of the album like coffee and pie and it's it's really interesting because having lost a parent um you just capture the sense of what it is to have grief where you're all of a sudden the entire life of someone is compressed in your brain and little things like that just like spark off like entire memories like mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. you don't even know if, like, you're not even sure if you remember them correctly, you mm -hmm. know. And it, and it's like I really like that part of the album, and and all the the poetry and spoken word stuff in the, in between the songs, I think is is incredible. Like I don't know, it just gives me so many feelings to where I'm kind of like giggling at one point, and the next point Aww. I'm like breaking down. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That means a lot. Um. um but uh, yeah, how did you sort of get into doing the electronic side of things? Because I know it's like you sort of came from being in a band and, and being a songwriter. And now, um, like, I don't, I don't think it's like crazy different from what you've been doing before, but I think you've embraced, um, I think the way a lot of musicians in the, in the solitude of, of the pandemic have embraced the electronic side of things and you incorporate it really well into the songwriting thank you thank you um yeah i uh i like i love to talk to you about this um mike because i feel like you've just been such a part of my like journey as a as a like a songwriter i was just talking to someone about um taking guitar lessons with you the other day and um I think I've gotten kind of, I think I've gotten a little better since then. I don't know. <laughs> um, Wait but, a yeah. what, Mike, Mike gave you guitar lessons. Yeah. Well, no. Mike and I met at, um, the coffee shop that I used to work at and, Oh, uh, which one was it? A beer oh. bar. Uh, for those of you who are like, why yeah. is she saying that? It's because <laughs> it's it a coffee called. shop owned by three Mexican Americans who thought it was really funny to make all the white people in Williamsburg say beaner bar when they were going to get coffee. Um, <laughs> shout out to our peeps. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I worked at this coffee shop. I was a customer there because I lived next door and then I worked there and I met Mike and um, we would like share music and just chat and um, uh, uh we yeah he started i said mentioned that i wanted to get better at playing music and so we did some guitar lessons together and then mike recorded the very first katie ellen demo um and i i was also recalling the moment where you're like you should play bass and i was like i don't play bass and you were like sure you do <laughs> <laughs> and i was like i was like i should remember that the next time i tell myself <laughs> i can't do something um yeah and that was like so fun um but yeah, it was always, yeah, funny. I, I remember cause it was like, you had just like chump had just broken up and, uh, yes. and, and you, you were just like kind of down on yourself and like what was happening. And I was just like, 
listening to all the music you had made and I'm just like, you can, you can do this. Like you should just go and do it. Like I have microphones and stuff at my practice space. Let's just make demos. And, uh, and it was like so much fun because like you do have really good musical instincts. So like once you did it, it, you, it was like so much fun to like watch you go from like there to where you are now. Cause I just feel like you're so much more confident and like, like you just, uh, like leaned into it in a, in a really great way. And, and I feel like, like this album is like probably just like the start of like more good stuff to come, you know? Oh, I hope so. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, <laughs> um, I got a lot of good things to say. It's like, it's just been so fun. Like watching the, you like mature as a musician Well, where I you were like, that. I can't possibly do that. So now it's just like, you put out this incredible record. That's like, you know, like light years beyond from where you were, you know? That means so much. That means so much to me. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's, I, I, I feel so grateful for that time and our time together. Um, and I, I think it, you know, I, I look fondly on it of great confidence building. Um, and yeah, I think that that definitely, you know, informed, just like me, it, it all, it almost like was like, you gave me a permission slip to like do stuff that I didn't think I could do. And yeah, I feel like that kind of is a direct through line to like doing some electronic stuff, which is something that I always wanted to do, but like, I don't know how to use like Ableton or make beats or like, I don't know, you know, I don't have a drum machine. So all that stuff was kind of like, well, you know, I had a coworker from another coffee shop, coffee world. Um, give me a Casio keyboard with a bunch of like pre-programmed drum beats. And that is where all of the electronic songs started on the oh, record wow. was this Casio keyboard, um, which is really fun. Um, and yeah, it was kind of just like, I was just experimenting. Um, this was like such a cool record to make because it was very different from, you know, like either the Katie Allen or the Chumped record where it was kind of like, I have all these songs. It's very straightforward. You know, you are in a relationship with your other people and that's what makes a song, which I think is very beautiful. Um, but this record was so much like really the creative process. You know, I use the creative process to make music in a way that I never had before, which was kind of like, I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. I'm just going to show up and play and see where it goes. And that was really fun you know, um, and I think lent this kind of weird, um, very personal stamp on the debut. Anika Pyle record. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really cool on the record that 
it, it, I think it's a hard thing to be completely honest about in when you're writing songs, because I think sometimes you get into that mode where you're editing yourself and you're, and you're thinking of like, who mm-hmm. is this for? And it's weird mm-hmm. to express these really honest emotions and things that are going on in your head in song form. Cause it's like, you yeah. know, you know, I mean, you've been making music for a long time and you always have people sort of like, and you hear those people in your ear being like, well, people are going to be like bummed out if you're always doing this, or you should make faster music or slower music. And, and it's like, I, I feel like it's really hard to get those voices out of your head to like really make something that is honest, you know? Yeah. I think that I, I try to, you know, this might be, I, like it could be cursed, you know, it's like talk about Spotify stuff. It's like, I made a record that, you know, half of it people can't quite listen to anymore because you hear it once and you're like, this is too sad. I'm not going to listen to it. (laughs) Um, but yeah, especially like the two, I try to be as, um, I'm not much of an editor in terms of like, you know, and this might be to my detriment, but if I am writing a song, sometimes it's just the song that I wrote the day I sat down and wrote it, um, which I'm learning to become an editor. That's one thing I've learned during this year is that sometimes when you go back to material and you rework it, it becomes better. Um, but that's def- almost a better problem to have in a lot of ways. Cause I yeah. think a lot of people start out as, I mean, in my experience, I definitely did, but you start out as the editor and then slowly learn how to get rid of that part of you yeah i mean i think there's you know there's room for both too because i've thought about some of the you know ethics of songwriting too and it's like if i was completely honest about everything that wouldn't that would be doing a disservice to some of the experiences that i'm writing about or the people that i'm referencing you know but and also it might not be it might not be art you know what i mean because sometimes just pure honesty isn't actually art hmm. like you Mm -hmm. have to make it into something that people can swallow in, in a way or like yeah like just because it's genuine doesn't mean it's good yeah artistically yeah. Or, yeah yeah or there's there's a way to you know i think about because i've been like in more of a writing like with a pencil space instead of a music space like thinking about um i don't often fictionalize my songs but when i'm it's so much easier to do when you're like writing a short story or an essay or something like you you can kind of finesse the details in a way that it's sort of per- from personal experience or autobiographical, but you're presenting it in a different way. And yeah, like considering doing that with songwriting is an, an, an interesting new piece of information I'm going to put in my little brain filing cabinet and put, you know, put back here somewhere. Well- but- like an example I was thinking of was I saw Neil Young a couple of years ago when he had that sort of Monsanto album come out. Oh yeah. And and it was like he played all this like wonderful material that's a lot of it is political and just like really poetic and and just amazing. And then he gets into this album and the lyrics are just like literally man monsanto is bad like (laughs) and you're like i need something you know dress it up in something here because like (laughs) we get what you're saying too much like we want to we want to like you know you you need a more poetic delivery in some yes yeah 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 that reminds me of um make me work for it a little bit yeah Yeah. (laughs) well also sometimes when you change the medium the message becomes clearer and more 
mm-hmm. resonant. Um, and that, yeah, that reminds me of this, um, this initiative, this artistic act that I was yeah. just highlighting for my internship. And it was, um, basically a, you know, amplifying awareness about, um, sexual assault. Um, mm-hmm. and instead of, putting these messages on paper, they, this artist put them on menstrual pads and then stuck them (laughs) around town. And it was just, obviously the message was rang so much truer, Mm -hmm. um, when you're, when you, you know, you just change the medium of delivery. Mm -hmm. So, um, another, another, yeah, a little level (laughs) to the filing cabinet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In a lot of ways, like people are smarter than you give them credit for, I think a lot of times. Yeah. And people, people love story, you know? Yeah. And 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 it gives you a chance. Like, I think for me, it's like, I've probably listened to your record a few times now, maybe like five or six times and it evolves in a nice way. Like I pick up on other things and that's what I want. I don't want to just be like, oh, she's sad. Like I listen to, (laughs) you know, I listen to that. All right next you know it's like I I like listen to it again and I'm like oh you know I wasn't listening for that the last time around and now I'm Mm. like catching up or like um the last two times I've really listened to a lot of the 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 poems and the spoken word parts and you know it's just like yeah give people a couple layers a couple flaky layers uh to get to the whatever the chocolate center of your yeah yeah of the music bloom an onion you know yeah who doesn't love a bloom an onion i'm just the, trying to be the bloom an onion of indie rock you know yeah you're like i didn't get some dipping sauce on this one <laughs> it's me the, the bloom an onion of sad girl yeah <laughs> yeah the tootsie pop of <laughs> I'm going to start putting that on my artist residency yeah. applications, you know, in the awards section, Bloom and Onion, of <laughs> rock card carrying member of Sad yeah. Girls Club and president of Dead Dads Club. Um, well, you, can, uh, no, you, you can, <laughs> you can put us as a quote on your, uh, a blurb on your next record. Okay. I love it. Bloom and, Bloom and Onion, three things. God, I <laughs> love things like says. It. <laughs> How many licks does it take to get to the center of this musical Tootsie Pop? Yeah. <laughs> Maggie Sirota, Three Things Podcast. I love it. I love it. Uh, so speaking of, let's get to your thing. What's your, oh, yeah, what's my your thing. thing? Well, I was thinking that I should I probably should have chosen a more happy thing, but I have been thinking about prison abolition a lot awesome. um, because I'm doing, well, I recently read um, Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. Um but I'm doing a fundraiser this weekend for an organization called Black and Pink that is based in Nebraska. And they work with um, LGBTQ plus 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 youth um, who are impacted by the carceral system. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just like, it's one aspect of the coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, as we're sort of doing, you know, this continual continuous reckoning with racial inequality in our country, um, how much the punitive justice system, punitive non-justice system plays a role in that. Um, And yeah, my dad is a formerly, was a formerly incarcerated person. He was Mm -hmm. um, in and out of jail several times for 
um, habitual drunk driving offenses mm-hmm. and for an incident of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And I see him, you know, one of one of my most prized possessions um, is this box that I have full of letters um, that were written back and forth during this time he was in jail for most of my sophomore year in high school. And he wrote letters back and forth to my sister and I, and it was interesting because I had kept all of my letters to him, but he had kept all of our letters, mm. um, or I had kept all of his letters to me, but he had kept all of my and my sister's letters to him. So when he died and, you know, we had gone through all of his stuff, we got this box of letters. So I was able to kind of like chronologue, chronologue, chronologize. How do we say that? <laughs> um, put them in order via date and kind of read this story. And um, it was just so interesting thinking about, you know, my dad being 60 plus years old. And for the first time, you know, when he got out of jail the last time, which was in 2015, he was ordered to take a domestic violence class. And he had a fantastic teacher who believed in her students. And it was that experience of like, I'm not a bad person. I can, I can be better. Like I can find joy. I can heal. You know, he had a lot of pain from a long life, but it was not going to jail these many times, you know, that, um, uh, prompted him to become sober or X, Y, Z, it was this one experience of restorative justice um, mm-hmm. that where you know someone gave him some hope, and jail does not work; it just no. doesn't. And no. um, you know, social isolation, like psychologists have proven, that it is the worst thing for someone's mental health. Um, and you know, I, I keep thinking about like, I read yesterday, I'm a little all over the place. Um, I should have warned you that this podcast would be <laughs> five hours long. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I read yesterday, like I was, you know, checking up on Biden's climate agenda and John Kerry was like, you know, we got to do this tree cover. We got to get, I mean, we got to do tree cover five times faster than we are. And I was like, then close down the fucking prisons. Mm-hmm. You know, you promised all these jobs to people in, you know, so you build prisons, you make prisoners work for fucking free. You know, I'm like reading these letters and my dad's like, they let me out so that I could clean the police, the police, uh, Dodge charger, you know, that they drive once a fucking year and, um, and close down the prisons, hire all the prisoners to plant trees, abolish the prisons and plant some fucking trees. Like, why are we doing this? You know, it's just, it's crazy. This, this, world is <laughs> insane it's insane and, yeah I, it's- I, last week my my thing was this book uh humankind a hopeful history by rucker bragman which i highly recommend but he talks about prisons in in the book and how kind of bullshit the stanford prison experiment was mm. and how the same guy zimbardo did an experiment with a car that basically uh, triggered the whole uh, broken windows policing. Mm. Uh, but, but basically he was saying the way they do things in Norway 
is really interesting and much better. And they have the lowest recidivism rate in the entire world. Well, and they're the happiest country on the planet. Yeah. Mm. Or I think it was Finland this year, but I mean like, you know, <laughs> Scandinavia. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, go ahead. Oh no, I just, I, I mean, I think about it just in prison is terms of like, what is the benefit of just sending someone somewhere where they're just going to live in fear of sexual assault and murder? Yeah. It, like what's the rehabilitative, what's the rehabilitative aspect of that? I mean, there isn't that, you know, to me, <clears throat> and this is a concept that, you know, I learned from reading Angela Davis's work and it resonating <clears throat> when you put people in prison, you are not faced with the problem that the societal issue that required their imprisonment in the first place. You lock them away and you don't have to deal with it. And in the meantime, Whole Foods can't, your cheese can get made <laughs> for free. <laughs> um, you know, we, we don't, it's an easy out. Um, and, you know, there are these really, when I think about it, I'm like, there are these complex issues where it's like, okay, what do you do with someone like Richard Ramirez? Mm -hmm. You know, but Richard Ramirez, you know, if for those, listening who are wondering what the fuck I'm talking about the night stalker in California who like brutally murdered like many mm. people and you know talked about being possessed by Satan he was so severely abused as a child mm. and there are there are people you know CEOs and serial killers often possess the same um particular gene that predisposes you to soci sociopathy yeah. and some people become those of Spotify sorry guys <laughs> <laughs> I haven't run your test. And some people become, you know, uh, like serial killers, <laughs> people who, you know, are quote unquote detriments to society. What do you do with quote unquote people like that? And to me, it's like you create a preventative society. People behave as you expect them. Well, like, it, like what you expect of a person is a lot of times what you get. So in a lot of ways, if you say somebody is a criminal and you are hopeless and we send you to prison, then therefore they end up sort of, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. They act that way because you expect them to act that way. And what was interesting about the prisons in Norway was they treated these people like people. And, mm. you know, they give them productive things to do during the day, like gardening. They have like music studios and the guards actually talk to them and they treat them like human beings and basically try to take away the stresses that cause the, the criminal behavior. So therefore they feel like they have something to fall back on. They feel like there's a future ahead of them. Cause there's, I remember when I was, in high school, I built houses in Camden uh, uh, for people. And then the people were able to get very low interest loans. The people you would help work with the people to build the houses and they were able to buy the houses and own them. And every mm, year wow. on, on Halloween around mischief night, Camden would just burn. And so once we finished this, like they would just set fire to the city. It was, it was really insane. And what they, what we saw was the houses in the neighborhoods that the people owned that that we built with them together were fine. 
that neighborhood became safer. Yeah. They they took pride in their community. And it was all because they felt like they had something and there was some kind of future yeah. that they had to build on. And the worst thing you can do is just sort of take away this aspect of hope and the future away from people because mm-hmm. they will behave accordingly if you treat them that way. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, prison is a shame. Like the 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 carceral system is a shame based system, and mm-hmm. I've been thinking, you know, if you've listened to Wild River, you know how much like failure and shame has played into kind of the, my creative work recently. And when you, you know, Brene Brown, shame researcher extraordinaire, you know, stamp of approval from shame.com or whatever, mm-hmm. um, says, you know, like people have studied the difference between shame and guilt and shame says, I am a bad person. I am incapable of change. I was born a criminal, you know, which for many people has so many racial and class-based undertones. Mm -hmm. I'm a bad member of society. I'm a cheater. I'm a junkie. I'm a, an abuser. Um, I'm locked away in prison because, you know, I'm a detriment to society that does not give you, when you say I am bad, there is no room for reform. You Mm -hmm. cannot go anywhere from there because society has said you're bad, it doesn't give you an opportunity to change. If you say, I have done something bad, you know, I, I made a mistake, um, everybody is capable of change, um, that's, you know, you move into a space of guilt and guilt is a barometer for behavior change. It says, I've done something not in accordance with my values, I've done something unethical, I, am not bad, but I have done something bad. And mm-hmm. and what do yeah. I need to make a better choice in the future? And yeah, putting people in prisons, it individualizes the issue. It does not address the societal issue of, you know, um, the lack of access to voting rights, mm-hmm. of, you know, poverty. Mm-hmm. So instead of raising the minimum wage so that people making seven fifty an hour trying to feed their families, um, are making $15 an hour, you know, like it, it, it's all connected. It's like, we'd rather put people in prison than fix the problems that require us to have prison in the first place. And half of the people, you know, there are so many people in prison that didn't commit the crimes right. that they committed. Yeah. Um, and, and so just, much of prison is for like, prison is about making people not in prison feel better. Like it's about revenge. Yes. It's about, it's about making you feel like you've done something good mm-hmm. for society like you know in quotations like you put this person away took this bad guy off the street and like all of prison is centered around that idea rather than making people into actual people you know and to actual yes. humans yeah. who can function in society and have a future and you know be part of this whole thing mm-hmm. yeah. oh yeah it's frustrating uh, that's actually a good time to end it. We're getting towards the end of this now, but this was so much fun. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so let me know when you play New York. I'd love to come to a show. Yeah. Oh my right gosh. Back. Of course. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that someday. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> next year. So why don't you oh. tell people where they can find you and all that good stuff? Yes. You can find me on Instagram at Anika Sneaker, like sneaker with an A. Um, and same on Twitter. Um, and I like to point people to my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Anika Pyle. Cool. And everybody listen to Wild River, uh, the album that just came out. It's very good. Gorgeous album. Gorgeous. Thank you.
thank you for coming on the show. Oh my gosh. Thank you so pleasure. much. This was a delight. Thanks, y'all. What is your thing? Tell me about your thing, please. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> and we're not prompted in any way to ask me. Um, I uh, This week, I want to talk about this thing that I've been thinking about for quite a while um, that's been on my philosophy brain. I always try to think back throughout history and you think of the predominant philosophy that sort of takes over a certain age. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the Enlightenment era, all of a sudden, it's this sort of scientific theory, more objective thinking takes over. The Romantic era is, you know, different. The early 20th century is different. And I feel like, in a way, they like philosophers and historians will look back at our time as the age of marketing, mm-hmm. um, as being the predominant philosophy, because in a lot like of ways... Like the way people talk about building a personal brand, like they they refer to themselves as a brand. Yeah, and it's almost comparable in a way that like Descartes went on his meditations and came up with, I think, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. It was this huge uh, shockwave sent through the philosophical world where everybody's trying to get to the bottom of what is true, what is mm-hmm. actually true of the meaning and all this stuff. And sort of he had this, epiphany where it's i am thinking and i'm aware there therefore because i think therefore i know that i must exist in some way okay so i feel like we've gotten to the point where because i have so many followers therefore i must exist mm-hmm. therefore i you know because so many people recognize my name and i've become a commodity for people therefore mm-hmm. i exist now where it's a, it's a similar thought process so many people have retweeted my tweet therefore i exist yeah a validation of my existence through mm-hmm. other people but it, it's um it's interesting because i want to talk about this guy named edward bernays which mm-hmm. a, a lot of people don't know about uh he was freud's nephew okay um and during world war one he was the minister of propaganda he, uh and what he did... Wait, is that an actual office? Minister of Propaganda? Right. Yeah, it is. Oh. And so he was really blown away uh, of the idea of America. And in Europe, they had just sort of got out uh, of the heel of royalty. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea of America being this meritocracy where people could sort of rise and fall under their mm-hmm. own skills uh, and effort mm-hmm. was really appealing to them. Sure. And and Bernays was blown away by this. So he was he, he got obsessed with this idea of taking Freud's ideas, only employing them to the masses. So mm-hmm. he saw that the masses could be manipulated by ideas. Mm-hmm. 
and so what he did was he started a business and one of the first things he did was he changed the word propaganda to public relations mm-hmm. because he was like propaganda has a negative connotation sure. to it. So uh, I'm going to call it public relations and it's softer and sounds was like it's a, a good thing. Was this in Austria? No, this is in America. Okay. Uh, he, he, I feel like he came from Austria or somewhere in Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, he, so yeah, he was working for the government in World War One, and then left to employ these ideas and to make money from them. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things he did was the cigarette companies came to him and they said that they had trouble getting women to smoke. Mm-hmm. So his idea was that uh, the suffragette movement was huge at the time. Mm-hmm. And so his idea was to have the suffragettes marching in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade light up torches of freedom in the middle mm-hmm. of the parade. And this was a huge thing because all of a sudden the cigarette became identified with a strong independent woman. Wow. So if you were like a flapper, you know, you cut your hair short, you wore certain mm-hmm. clothing and you smoked to show that you were an independent woman. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Another thing that he did. You've come a long way, baby. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another thing that he did was, uh, was it President Hoover? I think it was President Hoover who was having trouble with the polls. He was very unpopular. So what he said was you should invite Al Jolson to dinner at the White House and have the press there. Mm-hmm. And immediately he became more popular because he started to seem like a cool dude who mm-hmm. knew Al Jolson, who was this huge celebrity at the time mm-hmm. in the 30s. That's like um, a tactic Reagan really weaponized. Oh yeah. So what? So what's interesting is you can draw a straight line from him all the way to the Mad Men era of the fifties mm-hmm. and sixties, where they saw these ideas as an amazing way to make money. Mm-hmm. So what? What I'm talking about is cut forward to now, in that we've come. St- we've come so far from the origin of this idea that mm-hmm. it's just become a part of our society at this point where we all think this way. Cause we were raised this way to mm-hmm. think, to think that if something makes money and you can convince people to buy it, therefore it's good. So right. therefore whatever you do to get people to buy something to make money is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can see that with the way, uh, people talk nowadays with social media with likes and mm-hmm. and followers and, and all that thing. It's like all about like um, there was this video I saw, which which kind of sums up this point in a really beautiful way. It's a woman who is really stressed out about running her lizards Instagram account. <laughs> and she's and her therapist is saying like she's talking to her therapist and or telling a story that she talked to her therapist and the therapist is like, why don't you just stop? doing your lizard's Instagram account. And she's like, I can't. I told my therapist, she said, we'll take a break from your pet lizard's Instagram account. I said, I can't. It's my sole source of income. I have to post a fucking photo of the lizard every day. Every fucking day, four or five reels with the lizard, playing with him, whipping his arm. And I feel like we're just going to have to reckon with this idea. And we talked about it a little bit with uh, in the interview with Anika, where it's everybody sort of internalizes this and think it's something wrong with them individually. 
uh, where it's they're not trying hard enough, they're not hustling hard enough. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm so unhappy rather than the actual construction of the system of the way you're supposed to make money and survive in the world right. is the thing. Yeah, that's the thing that's inherently fucked. You're yeah. not the problem. This is the problem. But it's insane how you can draw a straight line back to this guy, mm-hmm. uh, Edward Bernays in the 20s, who nobody really knows about nowadays, but is this huge like thought figure for mm-hmm. an entire century and will probably will probably be around for another century mm-hmm. just because of we can't undo what we've done. Mike, is this show like kind of like a secret kind of avenue for you to just use your philosophy degree? <laughs> like is that like the ulterior motive and I'm <laughs> well the the proper answer I would give you is that's my whole life is a um, outlet for my philosophy degree. <laughs> okay, just making sure. Oh, <laughs> uh, if this is the problem is when you educate somebody to think critically about ideas that yeah. are presented to you, then you immediately deconstruct all ideas that are presented mm-hmm. to you, uh, which is not always good because, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you just need to have dumb brain to function mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. I mean, I had a thought about what you're saying. It might be tangential, but um, mm-hmm. like ever since like I got, you know, like I got laid off from my journalism job, you know, I've been writing more marketing copy, continue to live. And it's kind of marketing is just kind of this, whether you're brand, like you're building this personal brand or you're, or you're kind of appointing yourself this thought leader. Marketing is kind of this like weird world where people can kind of just appoint themselves experts in it. Yeah. And you don't, you don't really kind of have like, you don't like, like if you want to, be an expert in physics like you go get a phd in physics like you kind of have this you know this kind of institutional like validation of your knowledge where marketing people just kind of have appoint themselves this like expert in behavior and um (laughs) you know thought leadership's a word that gets tossed around a lot (laughs) yeah um but it's like you know just like where it just kind of comes down to hey i wear you know like i I sell things and sometimes I get up on a stage and wear a little and, and I wear a little <laughs> a like Bobby kind of, Brown mic, or yeah, like like a, Madonna a, mic. <laughs> a mic headset. And then I just talk about bullshit, but I use my hands a lot to gesture and I pace. So it sounds like it looks like I'm saying something yeah. and use big words like actualize. And mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, I, I definitely, I think I definitely agree with that because like, mm-hmm. That would really line up with a lot of what Bernays talks about in this sort mm-hmm. of psychology of the masses, where if enough people believe you're an expert, then you're an expert. Yeah, yeah. And and if you have an audience that goes to you as the expert, then you've mm-hmm. succeeded in a lot of ways, even though there's no sort of real world proof that you are. Right. Yeah. Like, it's it's interesting to see, like, kind of like then there's kind of these personalities that appoint themselves, um, and it's kind of interesting as these kind of beacons of wisdom. And then it's kind of interesting to see the people around them that buy into it. Right. Like, like my, one of my friends was showing me like footage of his old boss, like in some kind of like Ted talk like setting and just (laughs) saying some nonsense about the senses and how, like, it was just like, I mean, I wish I could, I had the clip to show you because it was just like, dude, you're not saying anything. Like your, your your hands are moving a lot. 
you know, but it was like really kind of wild to see the people around him kind of emphatically nod while he wasn't saying anything. And that's that's totally what this is in a lot of ways. It's the illusion Mm -hmm. of something, the illusion of expertise. It's like it's just a way to convince you to do something, which sort of makes everything fall apart if you if you deconstruct it even just a little bit, because Mm -hmm. like the whole thing about the market is that the best ideas, the best products will succeed because they are the best. Mm -hmm. But what they forget to tell you is that people can convince you that they're the best mm-hmm. and you won't even know that they are like, mm-hmm. uh, like, like the whole idea of having women's and men's grooming products, mm-hmm. like uh, a women's razor costs whatever five bucks more than a man's razor. Ah, the pink tax. Yeah. Because it's pink. Uh, and because it has like the commercial has like a woman in the voiceover being like, this is for you. Like we yeah. understand you. And they're like, well, you understand me. I will buy your razor. And it, meanwhile, it's the same like double or triple blade disposable razor that has that little moisturizing strip. Same <laughs> as like the blue ones they sell with dudes. Like maybe yeah. the handle is a little daintier to kind of, you know, sell the idea of femininity, you know, because all women are so dainty. One of the biggest problems, uh, the the reason uh, I think that Edward Bernays was so successful was right at the 20s, there was a point where all of these companies realized that they had to get people to keep buying their goods unless they couldn't survive Mm -hmm. as a company. So light bulbs didn't last that long. So you had to throw out your razor and get a new one. All these things, Mm -hmm. you know, you couldn't have shoes that lasted forever because you needed them to buy a new pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, he uh, came up with a way to convince people they needed things that they didn't need. Right. And that's the thing that I was saying, like that sort of stands out, like that the market doesn't actually take into Uh, account because it's not actually the best product you're just convincing people to buy it Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with objective reality outside of the fact that you've been successful at Mm -hmm. um, plugging into people's psychology and getting them to buy stuff right right (laughs) (laughs) like a congratulations on your sorcery (laughs) yeah i mean think about all the ads for like organic foods and just the nonsense that they say Mm -hmm. you know our water is cleaner than their water. Well, how could you sell your water if it's not clean? Like, like dude, dude, I know your water is from New Jersey. Stop. <laughs> yeah, and that's the whole thing of using the that that collective psychology of because mm-hmm. Edward Bernays was actually he had quotes to the extent of saying like, "I don't want to deal with individual people. I only mm-hmm. want to engage with the masses." Because hmm. like he just could he did not have very good personal relationships because of that. Huh. I wonder, I wonder why that was. <laughs> and, well, and, and also his uncle, uh, you know, Sigmund Freud basically said he's full of shit. My ideas are not supposed to be used for this stuff. And this is the guy who said like every, everybody has like dick problems and wants to another <laughs> and whatever. Like, <laughs> that, gee, that the, guy, the guy, the guy who saw, uh, you know, the masses as a medium to manipulate didn't have good interpersonal relationships. Wow. I didn't see that. Go- <laughs> did not see that development. <laughs> it was quite a twist in his biography. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Oh, he was unhappy. <laughs> no. <laughs> How did that happen? Poor guy. His, 
And his cokehead uncle, uh, he couldn't get validation from his famous cokehead uncle, huh? (laughs) And it all sort of like sums up, like I think Anika said it really well. It's like, there's so much research out there and you see so many movies and read so many books of just the much better way to do things. Yet we just won't. Yeah. (laughs) But I think it's because of Eddie, Eddie Bernays. He like fucked us all. Mm-hmm. Like he, he just taught everybody how, or, you know, taught all these like companies to control us in such a effective way that it's really hard for us to break the habit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think if I want one people, if I want what people walk away from this podcast with one idea, it's fuck Eddie Bernays. Yeah, exactly. Fuck and it's guy. really weird. Cause he's like one of those, uh, I listened to this other podcast on BBC called Evil Genius. Mm-hmm. And like he would totally be like all the panelists had to decide if this person is a genius or evil. Mm-hmm. And it's like they would decide he's evil. But like he's also a genius. Like, he's, like they, yeah, they aren't mutually exclusive concepts. Yeah. Like a lot of terribly evil people are, you know, Mitch McConnell, I think is evil. He's a really fucking smart guy. Really good at yeah. what he does. And, and, and uh, you know, and it's like. I think to a point, it's like, I almost wonder if these people really are evil or the incentives for them succeeding are just to do evil. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. Like the corruption of power and the being seduced by power and wanting more, you know, like where you just start to do unscrupulous and unsavory things to maintain and grow your power. Like I... I'm sure Mitch McConnell believes that he is a good person deep down. Oh, sure. Yeah. Kind of like what I was talking about. Like he believes that he is doing good. So Mm -hmm. it's like, how do you convince somebody like that? But also he believes that the things that are good also benefit him. Exactly. Like, I think it's kind of that cognitive dissonance of like the things that personally benefit him. He can kind of make the logical leap that they're inherently good overall. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm talking about, like with the market too, of like, if, if the company is successful and it makes tons of money, mm-hmm. there's really not much else to talk about market wise. Right. It's like they made a month, they're super successful and super popular and their stock price is up and it, that's good. End of story. Like, yeah, that. <laughs> there's no deeper dive into that of like, what's good for society or what makes people happy or or what's the long-term kind of the long-term effects or the long-term consequences or. Well, well, and it's also interesting that I keep going back to things that Anika said, but the way she talked about the dust bowl is Mm -hmm. it takes something so horrific and extreme to make Mm -hmm. human beings change their ideas on how to do stuff Mm -hmm. that I'm really worried about what that thing is going to be for us. I'm sure I'm sure it'll be like when the climate I mean just when we're really deep in the climate catastrophe deeper deeper than we are now because it wasn't Trump it wasn't like a full-scale insurrection at the Capitol Mm -hmm. it it's not it's not a a, a massive plague yeah it's not a pandemic it's not massive forest fires in California it's Mm -hmm. like I don't know it's going to be something I'm scared of like what it's going to be to to make people finally be like, well, maybe we should just rethink this whole society thing. I think it's going to be more so maybe eco-fascism isn't so bad. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Oh, God, no. That might be the slide. That might be the, uh, that mean, we just might be the, uh, you know, the the dog and, you know, in hell being like, this is fine. Say what you want about eco-fascism, but hey, they make really soft shirts. 
Oh yeah, my new clothing brand, Eco Fascism. darker mm-hmm. <laughs> what's your thing maggie <laughs> okay so my thing this week um i i think it's like i'm experiencing this kind of malaise and frustration and exhaustion with the discourse and it's the idea of the way that the right has weaponized the notion of cancel culture Mm-hmm. And the fact that it doesn't, those that term doesn't even mean anything. It's just kind of malleable to what, you know, whatever culture war they want to wage at the time. And it's like, it's kind of malleable and adaptable to whatever um, kind of legitimate criticism they want to squelch. Um, it's like, uh, it's like finding the oppression <laughs> there's none there yeah yeah so for example um i was just kind of really fascinated by the way that the right weaponized um the, like the dr seuss's estate like kind of doing <laughs> kind of doing some like reputational maintenance and pulling some old like obscure books that where you know depictions of certain people didn't age well so for example um one of the books they pulled they decided not to sell anymore was and to think i saw it on mulberry street which do you have you ever read that dr seuss book no i don't think yeah i I don't think i've heard of it until now where and i'm reading from this ap article um an asian person is portrayed wearing a conical hat holding chopsticks and eating from a bowl and then another book called if i ran the zoo Mm. have you heard of that one no me neither okay i don't know i don't like where this is going but oh <laughs> you're gonna, yeah it's going somewhere terrible so oh, no. um if i ran the zoo includes a drawing of two barefooted african men wearing what yeah wearing what appeared to be grass skirts with their hair tied above their heads so obviously these are you know horrific images they don't age obviously didn't age well um and so his estate is doing reputational kind of damage control and just pulling these, you know, they realize this is an age well and they're pulling, you know, they just don't want to sell this anymore, which is their decision and their right to make the decision. And I just hate the fact that it's been weaponized to um, like the right of this like kind of cancel culture, culture war um, where like people like Ted Cruz and Kevin McCarthy will say thing like they, like they, number one, who are they? have canceled green eggs and ham it's like well no no one canceled green eggs and ham it's available it's there for you to buy like <laughs> it's it's so bonkers like and it, it's it's like and the issue is it isn't that they don't know they don't have the facts it's like yeah they do know it's they do know that that's wrong it's just kind of like an easy war to wage it's an easy 
Well, that kind of ties into my thing too, because they're mm-hmm. plugging into this subconscious, like the collective mm-hmm. psychology of the people that follow them. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, you could see it with Trump, where the people that followed him led the way. Like mm-hmm. he, he just was figuring out what they think, and then he would just sort of like mm-hmm. uh, affirm their deepest fears by yeah. saying, "You're right. Like what you're thinking is right. They are trying to cancel you." Like. You mm-hmm. better watch what you say or they'll come after you too. Yeah, like he's a guy that really didn't believe in much besides like racism and you know, yeah. like 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 when his opinion on abortion changed or you know, like it's just like you don't believe in any of this. Like you don't go to church, you don't care about God. Like you don't like when well, appealing to these groups, it's like well what what they are really aware of it too because there was an interview with Lee Atwater who was mm-hmm. uh I think he oh really, yeah he's a fascinating yeah. figure i'm i i am a forever he's like an, another eddie bernays to me where yeah I think, where it's just like his 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 like influence is so corrosive on such an exponential scale and it's and like, he had that deathbed confession he was dying sure. of cancer mm-hmm. and what's crazy is he was super into blues music mm-hmm. yet he was so into he like made the whirly whore in uh Oh uh, yeah, no, he weaponized racism at every turn. Like, did you um ever hear his explanation for how he kind of engineered like Reagan era um dog whistle politics? Oh, that's that's what I was bringing up because yeah. I was saying like these guys have been really aware because it's all part of the Southern strategy. Yeah, it's like you don't say the N word anymore. That is that the one you're talking about? Right. Yeah, that quote. You don't say the N word. You say states' rights. Yeah, and then it becomes like busing and and all these mm-hmm. dog whistle yeah. issues. So, so it's like they know which direction the culture is headed and they are basically trying to say that the people that are still racist, you're mm-hmm. okay. It's not you. It's these crazy people. You're being victimized by these people that want change and want a better world. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just so, uh, it's so insane. And I, I mean, like, I don't know for sure, but I feel like Lee Atwater had to be aware of Edward Bernays. Like a lot of those guys would be aware of somebody like that. They hang out at like a supervillains lounge, like a cultural <laughs> supervillains lounge. Him like and Lex Luthor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Claw. Yeah. They're all like Lex Luthor. They're like, no, no, you don't need a toupee. You look good. It looks good, bald. You're tough. <laughs> <laughs> That's Superman. It's such a dick. He's so PC. He's like... He's trying to cancel you, man. <laughs> like, like it's, I mean, I think what like bothers me about the term, it's like words have meaning. So like, what do you mean when say so, someone's a victim of cancel culture? What does that mean? Like, sometimes I just see it used when someone gets clowned on for a day on Twitter. Yeah. And it's like, like you're like, no, like. <laughs> it's you open yourself up to being made fun of and everybody made fun of you. Yeah. That's not being canceled. Like, like ah. you're not, you're not like entitled to respect if you say something idiotic or ignorant and get called out on it. This, this is funny because this ties into something else I was thinking about oh. too, of how in the '60s there was this sort of push towards more inclusiveness, mm-hmm. and that and that it was very out there, and people were pushing against institutions to include uh, people of color, women, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so on and so forth, and they developed all these ideas to push these ideas forward and make them more mm-hmm. acceptable over time. Like uh, there's a concept called positive nihilism, mm-hmm. like, um, like the, like the N word where 
white people would use it as something derogatory, but then sort of black people took it over and were like, no, 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 this is our word now. You can't use it. And it means yeah. something different to us. Mm-hmm. So that's like positive nihilism. Okay. Now, now I feel like the Republicans caught on or the, you know, the conservatives caught on to that idea. And now mm-hmm. they're reversing it back on us. Yeah. Where they're, just, they're being like, we're going to, that was a good idea. Now we're going to use it. You're canceling yeah. us. Like we can't. Now, now we're going to weaponize it against you. Yeah. We are being excluded and we are the ones who are oppressed. And like, who has truly been actually canceled? Like if you had to think of someone who was actually legitimately canceled, like, okay, Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. But, yeah. Like, and it's, it's, that's a weird. Cause it's like, would you really say a guy who raped people and then was for decades and then was taken to court and put in jail for raping people. Is that canceling? Yeah. Or is that just consequences? Like was John Dillinger canceled when he was shot by the FBI? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, that's the, the like part that's so frustrating. I mean, I mean, that's part of the, and that's, that's part of the methodology is like, no, we're not going to yeah. like, there's no hard definition. It's just a straw man. Like they canceled, like they canceled Hitler. Like the yeah. allies canceled him. He just couldn't speak his mind. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? It's like, it isn't, aren't you the guys, the the personal responsibility who if like you do something bad, there's mm-hmm. consequences for your actions and tough, you know, tough titty. Well, and then there's also this kind of like, kind of class of, I, I mean, I hesitate to use pre- public intellectual, but for sake of argument, who've really weaponized be like um like this martyrdom complex from cancel culture and they've been able to kind of grift and profit from it and raise their profile and mm-hmm. you know profit materially and in this kind of right-wing ecosystem that likes to yeah well it's that it, collective psychology thing it could be you it could be you you are scared of it and you are right to be scared of it because right. it is real and yeah, then, yeah. You know, and then people like Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson are millionaires because of that. Yeah, yeah. Or just like even this kind of new class of like writers that have like, like they were constantly called out for either pushing out something like erroneous or um, like I'm thinking specifically of like Barry Weiss from the New York Times of like doing mm-hmm. work that was like shoddy and inconsidered and like, you know, really like you know, for lack of a, I guess, lack of a better word, was just bad. Like they were oh, yeah. kind of bad. They just silly, flimsy arguments, bad at our job, trying to like always create this victimization that wasn't there. And so then they take their, you know, their nonsense to Substack or whatever, and they're just handsomely rewarded for it. It's, and it's really frustrating because I think like it also has the um, side effect of affecting the people who are trying to do good in negative ways Mm -hmm. where it does make people, um, you know, for lack of a better term, like woke, woke culture be more extreme Mm -hmm. when sort of the goal of being more inclusive is to be more inclusive. Yeah. In a sense, it's like you create this sort of like dialectic, uh, I'm sorry to use philosophy. Oh, dialectic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, put a quarter yeah, in having, the jar. I'm having my intro, my intro to sociology uh, uh, class, <laughs> having flashbacks to those. It's such a so Marxist. Uh, but what you do is you create an an either or dichotomy when it's not an either. It's not. It's not either this or that. It mm-hmm. is. 
it is a whole mishmash of people with feelings and emotions and ideas who need to be sorted through rather mm -hmm. than being like, you are the bad guys because you say bad stuff and we are the good guys because we say the right stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just, I get really worried when the, the dynamic gets to be like that because yeah. like, we should be like, we should be able to reach a Tucker Carlson's audience with, I, with good ideas. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that doesn't happen because then they become the enemy. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, they have like junk ideas. But the thing is, it's like you start pitting those people against the people who believe this and then you start to lose control of it. You start to lose, you know, sort of control of the airplane mm. because it's like everybody's grabbing at the wheel at once rather than being like, hey, can't we just all agree to a certain set of facts and then discuss the ideas out of those mm -hmm. facts and data? Yeah, there's this one. I mean, it's a there's this one columnist at New York Post um like i mean it's just kind of a terrible newspaper all in all but like she kind of tends to, there's this one conservative columnist where she she like kind of boils everything down to like you're being conservatives are being persecuted because they don't think the right thoughts and like one of her examples was um like i guess when julian castro was outing voter um when he was outing like voter trump voter um yeah donation information like when the the border when the crisis of the migrants and the detention centers was really bad when their mistreatment um and she was saying these people are now being targeted because of what they believe well it's like no it's not the belief it's the material harm that that belief has resulted in which is like these people being horribly mistreated right. in border you know <laughs> Like people, yeah. you know, these people that we've been, that they've been deemed undesirable because they come from Mexico or whatever, you know, are being treated like animals and, you know, <laughs> not being given soap. Like that's, no, the thing they're kind of targeting is the harm that, the harm that the, the belief, like the material harm that the belief, like. Well, gets. it's like, it's, I think it's because, I mean, and, and I don't really know how deeply a lot of these people believe unless you get to like actual white supremacists like mm -hmm. you know nazis and stuff but i think a lot of this is done for money mm -hmm. so it's really easy to just demonize people that look different from you yeah but really the message should be that like if you make society better for these people it also becomes better for you yeah like the yeah. less these people struggle the less you struggle and the thing is i think that's lost in both sides of this debate. Sure. Yeah. Because it becomes these people, these craven people like Tucker Carlson trying to make money off of people's fear. Yeah. So and they, it's like, yeah, like I, there was one Tucker Carlson like B roll package, like where he was like setting up a, setting up, um, you know, just like a, the immigrants are coming to change the demographics of your town segment that he likes yeah. to do. And it's all like just like, like, people of like it was like migrant workers like picking vegetables but it was like that's somehow supposed to be ominous <laughs> yeah it's like, like what? yeah it's like these people are working to get food to you like what is the threat here <laughs> like i'm set you know kind of well it just comes back to my point of like the exhaustion of the kind of bad faith of the culture wars it totally is because it's not about it's not about reaching like I was saying, it's not about an end game. It is about power now. Mm -hmm. So it's not about 
turning the world into some sort of ideal Christian state where there are defined men and women and no abortion. Mm-hmm. Like that's never going to happen. So that's not even their game. Right. But the goal is to get them to follow them to the, like get them so scared that they follow them to the point where they can be told to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's frustrating. Like, it's yeah, frustrating. It's, just, it's frustrating when like just nuance, any and all nuance is stripped out of uh, discourse. But that's like, I mean, that's by design. Yeah. And it's like the quickness of like the social media world, which mm-hmm. honestly, it's kind of why I like podcasting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> because like you can sit there with ideas a little longer and it's a, it's a format that lends itself to just people talking with each other. Yeah. I mean, it can be used for evil, of course. Yeah. And you, you can know. also, I mean, you can say things that, you know, don't age well too. I mean, or even just don't age well or yeah. just. Not even just Stone Age well, but you're like, hey, maybe you should put more thought into that. And it comes back to bite you. Oh, uh, speaking of, I saw somebody was posting clips of the early Daily Show. Oh, yeah? During the Iraq War and and something. Oh, God, it was something. It was like Jon Stewart made some like terrible trans joke and was like making fun of a hippie war protester. All stuff that just did not age well. Oh, yeah. I mean, just at all. I was just thinking the other day about how like how much of arrested development the first couple seasons doesn't age well in terms of like transphobia mm. and homophobia and you know things racism. There was a I know me and Sarah watched an episode of Strangers with Candy recently mm-hmm. and they kind of like did this whole at the time it was very edgy <clears throat> but it was a whole episode where they were doing a raisin in the sun like mm-hmm. the play and of course, like they, the Mr. Jellyneck, the art teacher is directing it and he picks all white people to play the parts and he makes all the black people trees. Oh and, my God. And it's like, at the time, I think it was like this sort of meta comment of like, these are awful people doing awful things. And that's right. why it's funny. But, you know, fast forward to now, you're just like, oh, this comedy doesn't hold up because it's like, you know as a white person you can't really do that now you know like that comedy sort of went away uh yeah i mean yeah yeah i mean people still do it and they get i think they get in trouble for it but but and they do it under the guise of like i'm pointing out the racism Mm -hmm. but in a a lot of ways it's like it doesn't i mean it doesn't always age well and maybe it wasn't really great then (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as a college kid, I'm like, oh, this is so funny because like racism sucks, and they're like showing it to us. But yeah, and I'm just like, oh wait, this is a bunch of white people telling us what racism is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I think this is probably a good place to wrap up. Yeah, <laughs> but also, yeah, I wanted, I just want to get outside while it's still light out. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But that was a pretty fun episode. Yeah, it was great. And so, hey, if you like our show, feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter and social on facebook come to our house send us letters <laughs> um you know maybe send smoke signals send the pigeon yeah, uh, telepathic messages oh yeah uh what else what else what tarot else? tarot cards tarot cards um Ouija maybe boards. like write a little letter in the bottle and throw it in the ocean and hope skywriting <laughs> yeah oh wait did you just make a sting reference there maggie yes yes i did (laughs) put a message in a bottle but yeah no seriously (laughs) 
if you like our show, please, please, please leave us a comment. Uh, talk about it on Twitter. Tell your mom, tell your pets, tell your cousins, tell your old classmates. Yeah. You know that one classmate that, you know, messaged you and wanted you to, you know, join their pampered chef or their, <laughs> their, their pampered chef fucking, um, you know, pyramid scheme. Tell them about the show. Yeah. You know, spread that, the lay, that one friend from high school who was like the really hot girl, but now she like sells weird organic creams. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rodan, she's like messaging you saying, hey, Maggie, we haven't spoken in 20 years and I was yeah. never nice to you. But would you like to buy my buy my Rodan and Field yeah. skincare products? You but know, I talk- noticed. Yeah, I noticed you made that comment about your legs being dry. <laughs> no, I, but yeah, so, you know, those people in your DM that pop up in your DMs, tell them to listen to the show. Yeah, tell um, them. Tell them. Tell them. I'm trying to incorporate my mass uh, psychology here. Tell yeah. them. Smoke your torches of freedom. Whoa, check out Eddie Bernays over here. Yeah, he's, uh, well, he's, maybe I'll try to link in the, in the, show notes but there is a couple documentaries of him on youtube which are really fascinating hmm. uh, if you're not familiar with him look him up and you're just gonna be like holy shit you're gonna be like yeah i get ready to hate this guy <laughs> all right it's another fun one and yes. we'll see you guys soon bye-bye bye-bye love you all Network.